The Strange But True story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello, welcome to episode 15 of Things Are About To Get Weird. It genuinely feels like only yesterday that I was researching episode 5, let alone episode 15. This year has gone by so quickly and the last few months in particular seem to have disappeared in a flash. But I hope you're all well and looking forward to this week's podcast instalment. It is awesome to see the library of episodes continuing to build up. So if you like your podcast packed full of strange but true stories, unexplained happenings, bizarre life tales and odd phenomena, you're in the right place. And if you're new here, you've got a whole host of episodes to catch up on when you fancy it too. I don't think I've ever really mentioned this before but just a quick one to say that if you are enjoying the podcast please do feel free to click that follow button wherever you're listening. I know it can be different on different platforms but it's a great way to be the very first one to see when a brand new episode is posted which is of course every Wednesday. So, like many people, I love a good survival story. If I'm listening to a true crime podcast or watching a documentary, I honestly get giddy when I realise that it's going to be an account of someone surviving against the odds or the stars aligning to prevent a tragedy. I also can't resist a good coincidence, and when I came across this incident, I realised that it wasn't just a survival story full of coincidences, which would of course have been amazing on its own, it was in fact 15 survival stories full of coincidences all happening simultaneously. For me, that's when something crosses over into the plain weird, whilst being completely fascinating of course. And if I'm honest, I had to do a bit of extra digging to check that this story wasn't actually made up. But I can confirm that this event is 100% true. And it's one that I can't believe hasn't been more widely covered. This is the story of the Beatrice Church explosion. So Beatrice is a city in the US state of Nebraska. It's located in Gage County, which is in the southeast of the state. And although the name of the city is spelt the same as the name Beatrice, I do believe that it's pronounced Beatrice. If this place sounds familiar to any fellow true crime enthusiasts out there, it may be because of the Beatrice Six case, which was recently covered in the HBO Max documentary Mind Over Murder. Honestly, although that isn't the story that I'm going to be talking about today, it's an absolutely captivating case that I may well cover in a future episode, as it definitely has several really bizarre elements to it. But whilst the Beatrice Six story began in 1985, ours takes place in 1950, the 1st of March 1950 to be exact. The 1st of March was a Wednesday, and like every other Wednesday evening for the past 30 years, a lady named Martha Paul was preparing to head out to the West Side Baptist Church to lead the church's choir in their weekly practice. At the time, the choir was made up of 15 local residents, 
ranging from school children to adults who lived and worked in Beatrice, and even Martha's own daughter, Marilyn. In 1950, the estimated population of the entire city was just under 12,000 people, so I can only imagine that it had somewhat of a small town feel. Martha was well known in the Westside Baptist Church community as being dedicated yet strict, especially when it came to punctuality, and since stepping forward to lead the choir in 1920, there had been very few occasions when members had been late. In fact, although the official start time of the choir practice was always 7.20pm, the singers usually arrived at the church by 7.15 to ensure they'd all said their hellos and would be fully ready to get started by 7.20 on the dot. It wasn't unusual for various choir members to actually head to the church even earlier, For example, Martha's daughter Marilyn, who was also the church choir's pianist, had planned to arrive around 30 minutes before their session that day, presumably to have some extra practice time to herself before the singers turned up. Now, earlier that afternoon, the church's reverend, who was a man named Walter Klempel, had stopped off at the church to make some routine preparations for the evening's activities. The weather in Nebraska is still usually pretty chilly in March, and this day back in 1950 was no exception. Worried that the choir would be cold during their gathering that night, Reverend Klempel decided to light the church's furnace around 4.30pm to make sure that the building would be suitably toasty by the time that the group started to arrive. Once this was all taken care of and everything else looked to be in order too, he returned home to his wife and their 18-month-old daughter, who was also called Marilyn, to eat dinner before they returned to the church in time for the choir practice to begin at 7.20 sharp. But what they could have never prepared for was the disaster that was about to strike their place of worship. That night, at 7.27pm, just under 10 minutes after the scheduled start time of the meeting, a devastating explosion tore through the West Side Baptist Church. The blast was so powerful that it caused power outages across the city, obliterated the windows of neighbouring properties, and even forced the local radio station off the air. Needless to say, the church was gone. It was reduced to rubble and entirely demolished, and it was immediately clear that the incident would have been unsurvivable for anyone inside. So how did each and every one of the 15 choir members escape unharmed from this catastrophic destruction? In a twist of fate worthy of the first 20 minutes of a Final Destination movie, every single person who was meant to be in the church at that moment was late. Not because of one occurrence, like a road closure or a clashing local event, but for multiple, individual, unrelated and entirely fortuitous reasons. Firstly, there was of course the famously prompt and punctual choir leader Martha Paul. Her daughter Marilyn, the pianist, had decided to take a nap after they'd eaten dinner that night and failed to wake up in time to head to the church 30 minutes early as she'd originally planned. In fact, by the time Martha was finally able to get her then-teenage daughter to rouse from her nap, 
It was already 7.15pm and they hardly had a moment to spruce themselves up before rushing out of the door to get to the practice. Years later, in a 1989 episode of the classic TV show Unsolved Mysteries, Marilyn was filmed talking about the evening, saying, I was very tired and I wanted to rest for a very short period of time before going to the church practice. So I decided that maybe a little 15 minute nap wouldn't hurt and it ended up being a little bit longer, probably about half an hour. In the same show clip, Marilyn also discussed Martha's attitude towards lateness, saying, On Wednesday evening, Mother expected all of us to be punctual. No one was ever really late. There might have been very, very few circumstances, but most often everyone was there all the time. I really can't think of a time that anyone came late. For Martha herself to be late must have been a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. I truly can't imagine what they must have felt when they arrived at the church to see the building in pieces, knowing that had it happened on any other Wednesday, they would have been inside. But given that it was also highly unusual for any of the other group members not to show up on time either, it must have been a horrifying scene to turn up to, as it's unlikely they would have realised that they were not the only pair to have been running behind schedule that night. Then, of course, there was Reverend Klempel, his wife, and their young daughter. They always loved to take their baby with them to church events, and the choir sessions were a staple part of their week. On the night of the 1st of March, they were running on time and were set to leave their home to reach the church around 715 but just as they were about to leave, Mrs. Klempel noticed that there was a stain on baby Marilyn's dress and she planned to quickly change it. Realising that there wasn't a spare dress handy that was ironed and ready to wear, she had to decide whether to leave Marilyn in her soiled clothing or grab the iron and prepare a new outfit as quickly as possible. If she'd have chosen the former, it's incredibly likely that they would have been present in the church when the explosion happened. But thankfully, she chose to iron a fresh dress for her daughter, and this decision almost certainly ended up saving the lives of all three members of the family. They were actually still at home when the explosion happened, which once again was very fortunate, as it would have been pretty dangerous to have been anywhere in the immediate vicinity of the church in that moment, with all the debris and the windows shattering nearby. I feel that the chances of even those two sets of choir members being delayed was very small, considering how unusual it was for anyone at all to be late. But then we get to the rest of the group. With every set of circumstances I read, I became more and more baffled as to what the mathematical odds could be of all of these mitigating factors coming into play on that one fateful night. Let's keep adding to the strangeness as we dive into what caused the rest of the choir to miss the start of their practice that night. Two high school students, Dorothy Wood and Lucille Jones, were good friends with one another and they always attended the choir practices as a pair. As they were also neighbours, they would travel to and from the meetings together and 18-year-old Lucille would drive them each week. That night, however, there was a radio programme on about the actor Edgar Bergen, who was best known for his ventriloquism acts, and with it being 1950, she knew that if she didn't hear the programme as it was going out live, there was a good chance the opportunity would be gone. 
it said that it was very uncharacteristic for Lucille to prioritise something like catching a radio show over being punctual to a church event. But we all know what it's like to be distracted by something relating to a hobby or an interest, or at least I do. Speaking in the Unsolved Mysteries episode, Lucille said, I turned on the radio to listen to This Is Your Life. So I just sat down and listened and thought, well, I'd have time to make it up there on time. I don't know why I turned it on that night, but I turned it on and they said this was going to be Edgar Bergen's life. And I just decided I was going to listen to it. So on this occasion, Lucille told Dorothy that the programme was due to finish at 7.30 and that she'd drive them both to church as soon as it was over. As Lucille was of course Dorothy's lift, she didn't really have much of a choice in the matter and accepted that this would mean the pair were likely going to annoy their strict choir director. Across the rest of the city of Beatrice, other members of their group were deciding to make the similar, unusual and uncommon decision to be late for practice in favour of other pressing tasks. Just a few streets away from the girls, a man named Herbert Kipp was actually running ahead of schedule and would have been ready to leave his house and set off towards the church had he not remembered an unfinished task left over from his day. He'd been writing a letter that had to be sent out sooner rather than later, and as he was about to head out of the front door, he decided to hang back for just a few extra minutes to get it finished. In an interview clip, he said, That night, I was writing a letter to our denomination headquarters, and it seemed very important for me to get it into the mail that evening. Fact of the matter is, my mother was hounding me to get going because the time was late already but I felt it was more important to get it in the mail and drop it on the way to church. It gave me goosebumps when I watched the clip of Herbert talking about this experience, as it was clear that he wasn't fully sure why he felt it was so urgent to get this letter written and sent off, even though he knew it would delay him. At the end of the video, he kind of looks to the side, almost like he was still trying to process the magnitude of what taking this small decision actually meant in the end. And the impression I got from the whole interview is that he essentially trusted his gut. I think something was telling him that that letter was the right thing to focus on, and we'll get more into all of that a little later on, but it just really struck me. At the time the explosion happened, Herbert was actually still at his desk writing and nowhere near the immediate area. Then, like with Lucille and Dorothy, we have another example of the circumstances of one choir member impacting the late running of others. 15-year-old LaDonna Vandergrift, who was a soprano in the group, was trying to finish off some geometry homework ahead of choir practice that night. She found herself really struggling with one particular equation and told herself that she wouldn't leave for that evening's rehearsal before she'd cracked it. Around 7.23pm, a couple of miles away from LaDonna's house, two sisters and fellow group members, Royina and Sadie Estes, were sat in their car ready to drive to the church, but no matter what they tried, they couldn't get the engine started. The car had been playing up all day, but by the time the evening came around, it wouldn't start at all, and knowing that they were already late and not wanting to admit defeat, they called LaDonna to see if, one, she was still at home, and two, whether they might be able to catch a lift to the church with her. 
they were in luck on the first point, she was still at home, but LaDonna told the sisters that she was determined to get her homework done before practice, and apologised for not being able to help until she'd finished it. In hindsight, this was the best thing that could have happened, of course, as the sisters resigned themselves to waiting for their friend for a lift, rather than finding an alternative way of getting to the church. The next singer's reason for being late is honestly my favourite and very relatable. Joyce Black actually lived across the road from the church and was ready to leave the house on time, but in her own words, I was late because I was just plain lazy and I just didn't want to get out in the cold. Honestly, this is iconic and I'm tempted to use this line for myself for anything I really don't want to do this winter. She continued, and so I kept putting off going out the door. At last, I couldn't put it off any longer, so I put my coat on, and when I opened up the door and stepped out, our church just disintegrated. I think for Joyce, the shock must have been the worst in a way because the physical distance and time difference between her being there and not would have felt so apparent in that moment. If she hadn't felt those few extra moments of laziness between getting up from her chair, leaving the front door and walking across the street, it could very well have been the difference between life and death. She spoke about the immediate aftermath of the blast, saying, What really impressed me was our sheet music and our songbooks flying through the air. We had a lot of those things. It was really something to see. A real nice choir book fell right near me, and it was in pretty good condition, so I picked it up. I didn't think anybody'd care, because I wanted to keep it. I would have done the same. I think it would have felt incredibly poignant in that moment. But there were, of course, more choir members to account for. A machinist named Harvey Al was due to attend the practice as usual, but on that particular evening, his wife was out for the night, and he had his two young sons to make a meal for and get them ready and organised enough to accompany him to the meeting. Thankfully, as is often the way with kids, this proved much easier said than done, and he was running behind when trying to leave the house as they were all busy chatting. It's awful to imagine what the alternative scenario could have been, as of course his two children wouldn't ordinarily have been with him, they'd have stayed at home, but as he was solo parenting that evening, they would have been in the church with their dad, taking part in the choir practice, had the timings gone to plan. Finally, a lady who we only know as Mrs Schuster often took her young daughter Susan along to the weekly session with her, but on the night of the 1st of March, she had to make a quick detour to her mother's house to help her with some preparations for a missionary meeting. The stop-off went on a little longer than expected and resulted in the pair breaking their usual habit of being perfectly on time to the practices. Now, I've added it up and it looks like there were actually 17 people involved all in all, but the number 15 relates to those who were actually participating in the choir part. So I'm guessing that the number 15 includes Harvey Al's two sons and excludes the Reverend's baby and Mrs Schuster's young daughter or vice versa. I can't be 100% sure, but regardless, it really was 17 lives that were saved by lateness on that particular night, as opposed to the 15 that are usually cited in articles about this story. Just moments after the explosion, the choir members began to arrive at the scene, obviously with the intention to attend their meetup. 
and were greeted by the horrific sight of their church in tatters. As you can imagine, each person who was turning up was believing that their friends and choir mates had been inside the church, and it was only as each new member turned up unharmed that the unbelievable truth began to reveal itself. Until each and every person was accounted for, the group searched frantically through the rubble for any survivors, before slowly realising that no one was in fact missing. Marilyn Paul recalled this moment, saying, When we found out that everyone was safe and that no one was in the explosion, we were standing there holding each other's hands, and one of the members said, let's give thanks to God, and we offered a prayer of thanksgiving that we were indeed spared and that no one lost their life in this explosion. I've been sat here trying to picture what that moment must have felt like for them all, and even though I'm not a religious person myself, I completely understand why they joined together and prayed because it must have felt like a true miracle. I read a great Medium article by a writer called Martina Petkova about the event, and the title she used was How 15 Mundane Miracles Saved 15 Lives from an Explosion. And I think that is the perfect way to sum it up. The circumstances around why none of them were in the building at the time of the disaster were mundane and they were unremarkable, but in some ways that makes the whole situation even more bizarre. There wasn't some big, dramatic, overarching reason that they were all late. So many tiny, seemingly insignificant factors had to add together to result in the survival of the group, and they came together perfectly. Herbert Kipf actually discussed this in the Unsolved Mysteries episode and said, if this had been a busload of people stopped by a flat tyre or any such occurrence, it might be considered a coincidence. But where you have 10, 12, 15 people scattered throughout the entire city and each of them detained by some trivial little thing, each different thing, it can't be. Lucille Jones added, when I realised what had happened, I thought, well, if I wouldn't have been listening to This Is Your Life, my life would have been over, which is a very good point and another odd little detail about this story. Rounding off the interviews, Marilyn Paul concluded, I believe that night, and no one will convince me otherwise, that God didn't want us there. We were spared, and I'm very grateful. Whilst the million, or more likely billion to one, survival story of the entire choir is mind-boggling to think about, the actual cause of the explosion was less mesmerising. An investigation found that it was due to a gas leak from an underground pipe. Firemen theorised that the gas leak seeped into the church and was ignited by the fire from the furnace lit by the Reverend that afternoon. What's so weird to think about is that if this reaction between the gas leak and the fire had happened even three minutes later, there's every chance at least one or two people could have been inside the church. I feel like it would be almost impossible to actually calculate the odds that not a single person was inside the building when you consider all of the variables, and there's so many of them, it's nothing short of miraculous. 
Now, of course, as this all took place in a church with members of the congregation, it makes sense that many people looked on this event as an intervention by God or a miracle in the religious sense. And of course, I completely respect those views. As I say, I'm not religious myself, but I am somewhat spiritual in that I believe in higher powers and the supernatural and so on. The way that I look at this story, especially after watching some of those involved speak about what happened, I absolutely believe that something compelled each and every one of them to make all of the decisions that they did that evening. Even when the situation appeared out of their control, like with the Estes sisters and their broken down car, they still had that additional variable of requiring a lift from their friend who had effectively chosen something else over being on time for choir practice, which was out of character for her. It seems like each member did something that evening which was unlike them or their usual behaviour, or at least were linked to someone who did, and it ultimately saved them. I'm sure many of us have experienced that sensation of something not feeling quite right or our intuition telling us that we should do a particular thing or avoid a particular thing and have said something along the lines of, oh gosh, it's a good job I didn't do X, Y or Z in the end, after seeing what the possible outcome could have been. For me, I think Joyce Black's experience is in a way the weirdest of all, as she lived so close to the church and would have been most likely to get caught up in the explosion. But that random wash of laziness or just not feeling able to get up and go is what saved her. It's so trivial. It would have been such a bad excuse for being late had the explosion not happened, of course. But in that moment, it was enough. Even though she didn't necessarily have that feeling of foreboding or that something was wrong, the unusual and random fatigue that she had kept her safe for just long enough. In the end, what makes this story so outstanding is of course that so many people had things happen to them in that same moment, especially when you consider that the ultimate outcome in the situation could have been so terrible. I was quite curious to find out what happened after the explosion, as it's truly no exaggeration to say that the church was in a million pieces. And when I searched for West Side Baptist Church in Beatrice, I was surprised to see a Facebook page pop up. It led me to their website, where on the history page, I discovered that in the years following the blast, the church was rebuilt on the original site. The website states that most of the work in the rebuilding was done by members of the church and Christian friends, and also notes that the funds to help the project were raised unprompted from generous individuals, rather than by making a public appeal for help. In 2021, the church celebrated their 130th anniversary, and whilst they acknowledge the historical event that shaped what the place is today, they seem to embrace it as a positive without dwelling on what could have been. Whilst I couldn't find any further details about those involved on that night past the 1989 Unsolved Mysteries episode, I'm sure not a single one of them ever forgot that feeling of standing together next to the rubble that was their church, feeling like the luckiest people on earth. 
Well, honestly, even after doing all of my research and hearing the survivors speak in those interview clips, there's still a little part of me that can't quite believe this story is true, but it is. It really is just wild. I would love to hear your thoughts on this one. Have you ever been involved in a near-miss situation that your intuition helped you avoid somehow? Do you believe that there was some kind of higher power at play in this story? Or do you think it's just a perfect example of a bizarre set of coincidences coming together and forming a truly amazing story? As always, please do get in touch. I love hearing from you all. There are loads of ways you can do so. Our Instagram handle is at thingsgetweirdpodcast and on Twitter, it's at abouttogetweird. I'm still posting sporadically on Twitter, but honestly, it's just a really weird one at the moment. I have been overjoyed to see more and more of you requesting to join the private Facebook discussion group. We actually hit 50 members the other day and we've had a few more join requests since. So if you would like to get involved, just search Things Are About To Get Weird on Facebook and I'll be sure to let you in. I've mentioned quite a few of my sources along the way today, but just to recap and add a few more, the unsolved mysteries episode which is available on youtube if you'd like to have a little watch it was season two episode 13 and this story starts around minute 14 there was also the medium article i noted earlier as well as a great piece from thevintagenews.com There was a short piece on grunge.com which was helpful and I first stumbled across this story on a ranker.com article and dived deeper into it from there. Interestingly, there was also a really detailed piece on snope.com about the case, which is significant as it's a fact-checking website that deals a lot in debunking urban legends and they gave the story their rating of true, which helped to alleviate my worries that it was too strange to be real, so very, very useful. I know at this point I usually ask for a quick rating or review wherever you listen if you enjoyed this episode of course but I'm mixing it up a little bit this week as I was thinking about how I discovered all of my favourite podcasts and in all honesty it's almost always been down to word of mouth. So if you have any friends or family members who are into true crime or weird stories and you think they might enjoy this podcast, please do feel free to point them in this direction, whether that's in a conversation or via social media. Absolutely everything helps and I am hugely appreciative of any and all support. Thank you so much for listening today and for helping to make our little community so awesome. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. Thank you.